many people. I think I got 15 RSVPs, and seven of them were in the last 48 hours. But this is even more than 15 people, obviously. So um, how many of you are engaged? Okay. Okay. So, so actually, it's a minority who's actually engaged here. Is anybody hoping to be engaged in the next six months? Oh, yeah, I guess you don't want to raise hoping. your hand. That's kind of like bad luck. Hoping. Yeah, raise your hand. <laughs> so, okay. So, um, part of what many uh, years now I've thought about teaching a class for girls who were like kind of getting getting engaged, getting getting ready to get married, getting getting launched, and I thought that would be a great time to go in depth on cycle stuff before you start trying to get pregnant, so you can solve some problems in advance. But even if you're not engaged, this is still good to know, and you can still benefit from improving your cycle, even if there's no there's not supposed to be any babies on the way. So. Um, I think you guys probably all know me from the health class. I am Mrs. Dunlap. I graduated in 2003 from TAC, and I have five girls, um, three of whom are at Rabelais right now. And I, and the other two are home with my husband, and we, uh, we live outside of town. And we, we both like this area so much, that's why we decided to stay here after we got married. Um, my oldest is 15, and she made these pretty handouts for me with her little graphic design skills. Um, and so I thought maybe we'd just start by talking about kind of just your monthly hormone. I made this little chart here. So when we're tracking cycles, we always count the first day of bleeding as day number one. And then most people you know, bleed for the average is 45 days. So this is a theoretical 28-day cycle, even though we all know that most people's cycles are not exactly 28 days most of the time, right? Mm-hmm. Um, somewhere around day 14, you ovulate, and there's a little, in the picture that I put in your folders, there's like a picture of an egg popping out, just to remind you. Um, <laughs> if you, you might notice some mucus at this time, you might notice your underwear is wet, when, or when you wipe it's wet, and that is normal, that's totally normal, that's not a yeast infection. Um, some people, you know, get concerned. <laughs> and then, as you can see, your body makes all these hormones, and then they drop. It's a very crude picture, but basically they start dropping about day 21, when your body realizes, I'm not pregnant, we're not going to need this lining to do any more thickening, because there's not going to be any embryo implanting in it. And then it starts processing those hormones, and when they drop below a certain threshold, that's when you actually are able to start your next period and bleed. Your hormones have to drop for you to bleed. If you are bleeding, presumably your hormones have dropped. Sometimes people's hormones drop in the middle. If you're spotting in the middle of your cycle, that's because your hormones are dropping in the middle of your cycle. And it's sometimes people always spot a little bit in the middle of their cycle. They have 10 kids, it's not a problem. But if you were trying to have kids and you weren't able to, that would be one of the things you would troubleshoot. Um, it can also just be kind of irritating. So in this is the theoretical 28-day cycle, but really it can last anywhere from 21 days to maybe 40, 45 or longer. So where you get the variation is in mostly in two places. If you... <clears throat> If you don't have the resources in your body 
to ovulate on time, then you won't ovulate on time. If you're too stressed out, your body decides like, whew, too much going on out here. Let's wait to ovulate. I'm just putting this in here, tacky, <laughs> to record myself so I can, because my daughter helps me make podcasts later. So, so if for some reason you're short on nutrients or you're really stressed here, that can delay your ovulation. And the other thing where you can get a delay, so then you might ovulate here. Once you've ovulated, if you have enough hormones in your body, it's going to be another 14 days before you start bleeding again. So if your ovulation gets pushed back to day 18 or 20 or 25, then add 14 days to that. If you have enough hormones, you won't have a period for 14 days after 12 to 14 days after whenever you ovulate. So if you're having long periods, it could be that you're always ovulating late. It's pretty common, pretty common reason of long periods. The other way you can get a long period is, say you ovulate on time, but then you eat a bunch of rich food and basically lay in bed for this week. It's going to be a lot harder for your body to process those hormones and you can get a delay on this end. Even if you ovulated on time, you can get a delay in getting that hormone level down low enough to actually bleed, if that makes sense. And this will be a very bad several days because you'll feel very, in all odds, you'll feel very moody, very weepy, depressed, cranky, whatever, <laughs> bloated. If your hormones are backed up and they're not going down at a steady clip, you're probably not going to feel great. So those are the two main areas where you get cycle variations. Another thing that can happen is when you have your period, you could bleed for a long time and it can take a long, you're supposed to stop bleeding as your body starts raising your hormones again. But if for some reason it can't raise your hormones, you, there's not enough nutrients, you're too stressed, you're on an extreme diet, you're exercising, you're in a war, who knows what, <laughs> then you will bleed for longer and that will push this whole thing back as well. So those are the different areas where you might get the variation. So when you're tracking your own cycle and trying to learn something to help it be better, you're gonna try to figure out where the kind of the weak points are. So a couple things you can consider. If you, there's people who, there's people who had periods in Auschwitz and had babies in Auschwitz. And there's people who miss, have one short night of sleep and it sets their ovulation back five days. People vary tremendously in their sensitivity to environmental cues and how much that's gonna change their cycle. So my mother-in-law said, she's one of those people who could practically set the clock by her cycle. It was like 28 days and four hours or something. Like she almost could predict it down to the hour. It was so reliable, no matter what was going on in her life. She has, um, she's kind of a high hormone person. She's short, very busty. So obviously her body made plenty of hormones when she was growing. If you have a lot of hormones, you will tend to be shorter and curvier. If you are um, if you have less hormones, you will tend to be taller and bonier. So you can tell what I'm bonier. So I, and until I had kids, I was almost flat chested. So I was definitely the lower hormone type and people kind of just, it's partly just genetics. It's partly exercise or you know, different things like that. But you can kind of even look at your body and get an idea of what your type is probably. So if you have the, if you have a body that's more sensitive to environment, there's a lot of things that can throw your cycle off and you just have to kind of be aware of those. If you learn through experience by tracking them, 
then you'll have an, a sense of like, oh, I'll probably ovulate late this month. So why would you want to know? Well, if you're married, sometimes you're trying to get pregnant and people don't. I've known people who said, yeah, I got married. As soon as my period ended, we'd be doing it all the time. And then we'd kind of get bored of it about day 10 or 11 and we'd take a break. And I couldn't figure out why I wasn't getting pregnant. Well, that egg wasn't coming out till day 14 or 15. So they just weren't hitting it on time. And if you want to get pregnant, you, you, might, you might need to time it, which doesn't sound very romantic, but it's what a lot of people do. <laughs> Conversely, if for some reason you need to not get pregnant, you know, if you have a C-section, if you have um, a baby that is in the hospital getting their heart fixed or something like, I mean, these are, these are things that happen to people I've known. If you have a reason to not get pregnant, then you would not do anything from about day seven or eight until you know the egg has already come out. The egg only lasts for like two days, so you wouldn't do anything from here to here. So otherwise, your option would be not doing anything ever until that baby gets his heart defect fixed, which is not, not great for marriages. So that's kind of why people typically track it when they're thinking about getting married. And then if you're not thinking about getting married and you're just trying to have a healthier cycle, then you're getting a lot of information from that. So if you, for instance, if you're bleeding a long time, there's a couple different reasons you could be bleeding. One could be you just make it have a ton of hormones and you make really thick linings. And so you're just going to bleed a lot when you bleed. Another reason could be that when you bleed, your hormones, your body can't get your hormones back up. Maybe you're anemic. Maybe you don't clot very well because you're not getting enough vitamin K in your diet. Um, and then if you find what makes your ovulation late or changes your ovulation, that's really good information to have to know like, oh, I'm only sensitive to time zone changes. It doesn't matter if I lose a night of sleep. It doesn't matter if I have coffee. It doesn't matter if I exercise more or less. That's really great information to know. So if things are running pretty normally, that is a sign that you're that of overall health. It's supposed to be pretty consistent like that. Again, if this is the can be the cranky week, right? That last week before your period, wow. you can feel all bloated. So this is a week to really put some extra attention into what you're eating, how much you're exercising, because for most people who are your age, just exercising and drinking a lot of water and eating a lot of vegetables will mean that you don't really get PMS or cramps. Um, and conversely, if you drink coffee and alcohol and eat a lot of cheese and chocolate and sit still and watch movies for that week, <laughs> it's only going to make it more so. It make, it just, you're not helping your body to process these hormones and get them down to the low level that they're supposed to be. So, so I mean, you know, I'm not saying never have chocolate or watch movies, but just be aware if you, if this is a bad time for you, if you have a lot of hormones in your system, this can be a really rough week. For somebody who has a little less hormones in their system, like me, Sometimes this is a rough week, but actually when I would get cranky when I was in high school and I still notice this now, it was about day five. So for me, I run, I don't know, maybe I run a little anemic or something. On the last day or two of my period, I am just ravenously hungry. hungry. This just happened a couple, a week ago. And I was like, why do I keep eating? Like I'm not normally just eating all day. I'm 38. Like this is not, my metabolism is not that fast. I'm not that hungry all the time. And I was like, oh yeah, it's, it's a day five munchies. 
Day five is the day where like everything sounds good. I'm like, oh, Fritos, Sour Patch Kids, donuts, like things that normally don't really call my name. Any calories sound great on day five. But I think for me, I'm always kind of behind the curve because my body doesn't make a ton of hormones. So by the time I'm done with my period, I've lost some blood and I'm kind of behind the curve. If you make a lot of hormones, you might feel great as soon as your period starts. It's like, finally, finally, the levels are down. You might feel great during your period. You might feel awesome at the end of your period because you've just released a bunch of you know, hormonal material and, and things haven't gone back up yet. So knowing what your own tendencies are is really, really helpful. So my mom used to be like, are you on your period? When I would start crying on day five. <laughs> and I'd be like, no, I'm not on my period. But I'm just, now I know that I'm just super, super hungry and kind of tired. And that that would, is what would make me emotional when I was a teenager. So any questions? And probably lots of questions. Yes. I have a quick question. So you said like the last like bit that can be hormonal and hard before you start your period mm-hmm. to watch your exercise. Do you mean like not exercise too much or make sure you're exercising? No, make sure you're exercising. Okay. If there's any time of the month to exercise too much and really push yourself, it's the last week. So if you normally exercise and you st- I bet you find that you're feeling cranky at this time of month, exercise more. So I was talking to a girl who would exercise like 40, 45 minutes at a time. Um, and she said, well, I said, well, why do you pick 45 minutes as your stopping point? She said, well, that's the place where I just feel kind of nice and relaxed, but not too tired. But she was still getting pretty bad cramps. So I said, well, that week you would need to exercise an hour and a half. Like you need to push yourself till you are wiped, but then you won't be cranky. Um, it also tends to, exercise tends to help cramping a lot. Okay. So in addition to making this week better, it makes the next week better. Okay. I, I asked that question because I find that like whenever I, I love to like run and stuff, mm-hmm. but when I run like a week before my period, like I'll start running and I'll feel fine. But then like once I stop, like I get this really bad pain, like in my, like down. Do you get cramps something. normally? Not normally, no. And it was, oh. it's not so much a cramp. It's more just like a... I don't know, it's just like a sicky, really sicky, uh-huh. almost crampy feeling. And it happens like right before, if I run intensely right before my period. So I was wondering, is that a yeah. bad sign? Is it well, it sounds to me, sometimes people will get nauseous right before their period, just okay. in general, even without running. And um, generally that's thought to be like just excess hormones. So if you, if you ate more vegetables and if you tried drinking a couple glasses of water before you went running and then a couple glasses right after, it could be that the running is really moving everything around in your lymphatic system, mm-hmm. but your body's kind of like, oh, I just got this dump of hormones and now I have to do something with it. Mm-hmm. Um, your lymphatic system is like your, kind of like your fluid circulation in your body. It's different from your blood. And when you exercise, it helps your body move everything around and process it. Also eating fiber helps you poop out things that you don't need, like the excess parts of hormones that your body's like, no, we don't need this. When your body breaks things down, it'll reuse things sometimes, but sometimes it'll just excrete it as well. So being eating plenty of fruits and vegetables and staying really regular can also help your mood a lot and also tends to make you less bloated because the potassium in the fruits and vegetables helps balance out the salty stuff you want to eat and you, won't, you don't retain as much water. It's not so much the salt that's the problem, but if you eat salt and it's not balanced by potassium, that's not a good balance. So all fruits and vegetables have potassium, not just bananas. <laughs> bananas has a marketing campaign behind it, but all fruits and vegetables have potassium. Um, 
So a couple of common things or fairly common things that girls experience with their cycles is if you have very, very irregular cycles, you could have what's called polycystic ovary syndrome or called PCOS. That tends to go with, um, it often goes with putting on weight and having skin problems and having like thinning hair and a kind of a collection of other signs if you have that tendency that way. And the, the reason it happens is that your body is not processing sugar well or just not processing your calories well and then over time you become insulin resistant which means the cells don't want to let the sugar in. So you eat your food, your sugar's floating around, your body sends out insulin, like diabetics need insulin. The insulin's supposed to open up the cells to put the sugar in the cells, put the nutrients in the cells. If you've been eating more than you need, or particularly more sugar, or a lot more salt than you need, so basically like a lot of processed foods, it can tend to start this pattern of eating too much and the cells being very unhappy with your body trying to force the stuff in there. They're like, we've got plenty. So if you have that tendency, then you're gonna have to probably watch your carbs and exercise more. So I'll tell you a story of somebody I know who had this um, polycystic ovary syndrome or PCOS. So she, um, <clears throat> I have so many. This was Jason and Medusa <laughs> for, a, <laughs> for a class I was teaching. Yeah, most of these other pages are drawn. But um, P, oops, PCOS is the kind of abbreviation, PCOS. And she had, first of all, she had very regular cycles. She'd go months without a cycle. And the reason that happens is because you're, when your insulin is too high, all of your hormones end up too high, and your hormones never get low enough to allow you to bleed. So she would have an epic period, like a 10, 12-day period every three or four months, which is, and she'd bleed a ton, because her, and she would feel pretty gross for a lot of the time, right, as her hormones got up and they stayed up. And so you can go on medications to regulate this, but ultimately what she ended up doing was um, going on a low, very low carb diet because her body tolerated carbs so poorly that that's what she had to do. It's not recommended for everybody, but in her case, that was the right kind of diet. And after she'd been on this diet for some time, um, she got pregnant, which she hadn't been able to before. And then, after she had that baby, she got pregnant right away without doing anything, any low-carb diet, which is very often the case. And as she's gotten older and she's been on the low-carb diet and exercised more and built her muscle mass to increase her metabolism and help everything run better, she now has regular cycles. You know, in her 30s, she has 28, perfect 28-day cycles, where in her 20s, her periods were just a mess because she hadn't figured out how to eat and how to exercise for her body type. Is she still on the low-carb diet now? Yeah, I don't think she has to be as low-carb now as she did for that period of time. But for some people, going on a very low-carb diet allows their body to kind of relax and heal from that. And then over time, she eats a more, not extremely low-carb, just kind of a moderate-carb diet, and it's fine. But she's also exercises a lot more, and she's really, yeah, you figure out what works for you. And she is short and curvy and has just a lot of hormones. That's just kind of how she's built. Um, So she would go run two or three times a day the week before her period. 
if she could get out, her family would be like, please go. Just, just leave already and go running again. Yes, again. But she also really, really liked coffee. So since she wouldn't give up her coffee, that is not helping your, your body to process. Your liver can only do so much, right? Your liver is, has so much to do processing all the different substances you take in. One of those is coffee. And so if it has a bunch of hormones it's going to process, drinking a pot of coffee a day is not, is not going to help you feel better. Another thing that some people have is called endometriosis. I'll write this endo. And this is commonly thought of if you have extremely painful periods. So a couple of my friends had such painful periods that she said, one of my friends said childbirth was a piece of cake because she would sometimes pass out from her painful periods and pass big clots. And, and I was like, whew. Um, me on the low hormone end, my periods were never that bad. So childbirth was quite an, you know, an experience. But so then she, um, so people who have endometriosis, we don't totally know why this happens, but they seem to get a lot of inflammation in the lining of the uterus and pieces of uterine tissue start growing in other places of your body. Now, the thing that's weird about endometriosis is it should be able to happen to anyone because your uterus is actually, and your ovaries, it's kind of an open system. It's not tightly sealed. And little bits of your menstrual tissue could theoretically make it into your circulation every single month, and they probably do. But for most people, your immune system is always looking around and it kills any cells that are in the wrong place. So in endometriosis, one of the theories and that makes the most sense to me is that there's an, a defect of the immune system. Something is suppressing your immune system for a period of time and that those cells that are supposed to walk around, go around finding things that are where they're not supposed to be and getting them out of the way, those cells don't get things in time. And then you get little bits of um, endometrial tissue, the lining of the uterus tissue, that grow in other spots, usually in your pelvis. But, um, but they grow in other spots and that's part of what causes the period pain because those little spots of tissue will also grow in response to the hormones and then you know, you're kind of bleeding inside or you get big clots. It's just very, very painful. So there's a lot of dietary things you can do for endometriosis. The most common thing is to go on a very, um, very, very clean diet, usually low dairy and um, kind of tending towards vegan, if not completely vegan, lots and lots of vegetables. Again, these tend to be people that make a lot of hormones. So if there were a war and a famine, those might be the only people that would have kids. But in our affluent society where we can all eat as much as we want, people like me who make less hormones get the advantage, right? Because I can eat whatever and I'm not gonna get endometriosis. But the other people who seem to get endometriosis are people who go through an extremely stressful period of their, of their life or who have another immune disease such as celiac or some kind of autoimmune condition. They often seem to go together. And we know that if you are, have um, severe food intolerances, that tends to kind of impair your immune system because your immune system is busy dealing with this food that you don't process very well. And that might be what opens the door to endometriosis. 
And also stress is not great for your immune system. So I've known people who had, you know, moderately bad cramps. Maybe they had that tendency to endometriosis and then they went through an extremely stressful year or two and they developed endometriosis so badly that they were looking at surgery. And the surgery is basically they, they go into you and try to find the bits and take them out. Um, or if you're trying to get pregnant, they go in and scrape your uterus out because the lining tends to accumulate and be inflamed. And many people who have endometriosis, the first time they get pregnant, they miscarry. But after that, they get pregnant very easily. So some doctors had the brilliant idea. I was like, well, if, you, if we know you're more likely to get pregnant after a miscarriage because the lining sheds so completely, then why don't we just pretend you had a miscarriage, basically scrape your uterus out, and then you try to get pregnant in the six months after we've done that. And it works a fair amount of the time. So there are solutions, but the, the solution that will mean you don't have to be in pain every month is to figure out what you need to do for your diet. And I know um, my sister's dealt with this a lot and she's tried all different things and you know, gotten pregnant without getting the, that scraping surgery just through eating a really, really clean uh, diet with lots of juicing and lots of vegetables and stuff like that. Yes. Oh, I don't know. I mean, maybe it's maybe five percent. It's not. It's not extremely common, but I definitely know several people with it. I can think of a. Few, I don't know. Um, with polycystic ovary syndrome, it's again, it's hard to get estimates because people. There are there are overweight people who don't have any insulin problems and who have no trouble getting pregnant and have regular cycles. Yeah. And there are people who don't look particularly overweight. But for their frame, if they have a very small frame, like go by your ring size, um, they could be overweight enough for their frame. You can be skinny fat and still have that insulin resistance situation. Um, so I knew someone who did, I don't know, I think she was five, the first five years of her marriage, she didn't get pregnant. She had, she did not look overweight, but I looked at her hands her, and her, you couldn't see her wrist bones. So she's a very small person, but if you can't see someone's wrist bones, you know, they're carrying a certain, I mean, depending how bony your wrists are, but, but she was very fine, she was very fine bones. She had, she had, yeah. <laughs> so she was talking to me about not being able to get pregnant. She's had fairly regular cycles, but something was not quite right. And, so, and she did have the skin trouble, but once she got pregnant with her first kid, and like in most cases, it's not a problem after that because when you nurse a baby, it takes so much sugar out of your blood that it's, and you're so busy with the baby. Most, a lot of people who have polycystic ovary syndrome, if they can just get pregnant the first time, they're good after that. Um, and getting pregnant the first time might mean eating a low carb diet. There's medications that help manage your blood sugar, just exercising a ton. So like, I know someone who has polycystic ovary syndrome, she was never particularly overweight but she had to work out really hard to not be overweight. Her skin didn't look bad, but I found out that she had a very careful skincare regimen mm -hmm. just to have normal, which when you're in your 25 or 30, hopefully you should not have to be that careful about your skin. I don't use anything. I just wash my face with water and put some moisturizer on and that's the end of it. So if you're still using proactive when you're 25 or 30, that might be a sign that your, your blood sugar is not quite right because that tends to manifest in your skin. And she also had the thinning hair on the top and it was actually her hairdresser who said, you know, 
it's pretty thin on the top here. That can often be associated with hormone problems. I think you should get that checked out. <laughs> so that finally got her going down that path. And for her, she's, she has used medication and gotten pregnant with medication. She's also had times where she wasn't using any medication and it was Lent or Advent and she's gotten pregnant during Lent and Advent because she cut back on some of her treats and that was the deciding factor to cutting out the, the couple chocolate bars or the bowl of ice cream. It wasn't like her diet was crazy bad. It was just she cut out the little bit of treats and that was what tipped, flipped the switch for her. So it's, it's surprising sometimes you can go years and feel like this is a huge insurmountable problem and then one Lent you give up chocolate and you get pregnant. I've seen this happen to people. So I have also known people that have very irregular cycles or have very long cycles and have five or six kids. And then you meet people who seem to have regular cycles but aren't getting pregnant. So as you can imagine, it could be a question of timing, right? They might not be timing things right. Because, you know, the sperm only lives so long, the egg only lives so long. Oops, that's a bone mass chart. That's my other chart. <laughs> um, it could be that a person isn't ovulating every month. If they have a 28-day cycle, but they're not getting pregnant. The other thing that can happen is maybe you have a 28-day cycle, but you actually ovulated on day 20 or 21. So if you were to ovulate... If you were to ovulate here, and so if the egg that's supposed to pop out here actually pops out here, but your hormones then drop very fast, if the egg had been fertilized, there's not enough hormones to support a pregnancy. So I know people have had reliable cycles but couldn't get pregnant or then kept miscarrying. And when they tracked their cycles, you know, they got married thinking like, oh, whatever, I don't need to track it. And then when they tracked their cycles, they could see, oh, my luteal phase, this is the luteal phase, this last part of your cycle. My luteal phase that's supposed to be basically 14 days, 12 to 14 days, if your luteal phase is only nine days, you will miscarry. There's just not enough hormones to keep you pregnant. So those people tend to get progesterone supplements, or you can change your diet to help your body make more hormones. But that's a really, really nice thing to know before you get married. If you've tracked your cycles and you can see, oh, yeah, every month it's 28 days, but I'm ovulating on day 20, I only have an eight-day luteal phase, that is the nice thing to know before you try to get pregnant and then miscarry many times and have that kind of unnecessary heartbreak because it's a very, very easy fix. You go to your doctor, hopefully he doesn't think you're weird. A lot of doctors are familiar yeah. with charts like this now, but if you go to an older doctor, they're probably not. You go to your doctor and bring him a chart or they'll check your progesterone in your blood and they'll say, oh, you're right, you don't have enough. And then if you are good at negotiating with your doctor, you can get your progesterone prescription in advance. So what some people will do is if they're trying to get pregnant, they'll time when they're sleeping with their husband, they watch their temperature go up because your temperature kind of goes like this. It's pretty steady the whole month. After you ovulate, it goes up. If you get pregnant, it goes up again. It goes up another step. So you can tell if you're taking your temperature every morning, 
Um, you can tell when you're pregnant before you would be able to take a test. So what I've known people to do is they're trying to get pregnant, they time it, they look for that extra temperature bump, so they know they got pregnant, and they start taking progesterone before they even would have missed their period. And that's how they stay pregnant. Whoa. Yes. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Cool. Just to give you a sense of all the different options there are out there. You don't have to just wait. I know I've known people that for whom waiting till they got to their period, they missed their period on day 28, and then they're like, oh, now I'll find out if I'm pregnant. You take your pregnancy test, you go to the doctor, you get the progesterone prescription, and they would miscarry two days later. They hadn't gotten it in time. Because for them, they had such a severe deficiency, they needed it before they would have even been able to take the test. Um, is this like shortened luteal phase? Is this the same thing you were talking about earlier when you were saying like like ovulation would get bumped back? Yeah, so period? it's possible. If sometimes ovulation gets bumped back, and then your whole luteal phase will still be 14 days. Oh, okay. And that, so the whole luteal, so then your whole cycle ends up longer. And that's a, that's overall um, a simpler problem. Because okay. it means that somewhere in here before you ovulated, you got too stressed out or busy that forgot to eat or something. But if your luteal phase is short, you're probably very low on nutrients and I'd say particularly protein. So there's three people, I've, four people I've known who had this problem that I've known well enough to really kind of hear their stories unfold. Two of the people had low progesterone in their 20s already. No, no, actually five. No, Two of them had low progesterone in their 20s. One of them had they'd gone through an anorexic phase, which is not good for your hormones because you know if you lose too much body fat, it tires out your body. Another one of them was very, very cheap about what she would buy. I think she was just living on oatmeal and beans and rice for years, which is enough to sustain life, but not enough for <laughs> optimal fertility for many people if you're not getting that much protein. And another girl, another woman exercised really, really hard and ate a low-fat diet when she was young. So two of these women found that as they got older and they got more affluent and they ate more protein and they ate more fat and they put on a little more fat, because your fat actually makes hormones, that they didn't need progesterone the same way. So you would think, you know, oh, if your hormones aren't great in your 20s, like, game over, you know, it's only going to be downhill from there. But these people actually found that their hormone systems worked better in their 30s as they had figured out more of what worked for them in terms of nutrition. Um, but again, the supplements are there. It's a very safe <coughs> supplement. And occasionally, people who aren't even trying to get pregnant will get progesterone for a period of time because it just helps them feel better. So if you had the short luteal phase, you might also have the problem of maybe not sleeping very well or feeling very anxious. And progesterone is a very calming hormone. So I wouldn't say in your 20s, like, use progesterone all the time. But people use it for a period of a few months. They use it just in this last week or two of their cycle, once they've ovulated. You don't want to use it before you've ovulated because then it interferes with ovulation. But if you've ovulated and you're, you're fairly confident about that by looking at temperature, looking at mucus signs, then you could use progesterone in this last phase just to feel calmer or sleep better. Women in menopause often use progesterone for that reason. But if for some reason your hormones aren't working very well in, when you're young, it's still a possibility. Yeah. Um, do you know anything about Hashimoto's thyroid? Yeah, actually, uh, there's a handout on that. Okay. Are these all? Yeah. yeah. Yes. Yes. And I guess we're going to have to share. 
So, so what are the um, letters in there? There's just different types of hormones. Yeah, yeah. So FSH is called follicle stimulating hormone. Mm -hmm. Um, this is estrogen, okay. and this is progesterone. Okay. What's LA? Oh, luteinizing hormone. So this one is the one that spikes the most right when you're about to ovulate. Yeah. And if you use an ovulation predictor kit, where it's like you pee on these strips to figure out when you're going to ovulate, um, the strips are detecting the LH. Okay. And basically, it'll be like nothing, nothing, nothing. The line gets darker, and then, oh, the line's super dark, and the day after that, the line's light again. It's very clear if you're ovulating. People also use it to figure out, oh, I'm not actually ovulating. Something's inhibiting ovulation. The funny thing is that only one or two eggs get released each month, and we think of it like, okay, here's an egg that's ready to go. That's the one that's going to pop out. But actually, the egg selection process begins six months prior. <laughs> So there's eggs that are kind of like pre-selected and then kind of primed. And one egg, there's like maybe five or 10 or 15 eggs that are kind of like all of just about ready to go that your body ripens, but one pops out and that becomes the egg. So there's one that would be like ahead of the game, but your body, the, the pre-ripening process actually happens quite a few months before. So that's why it can take several months of better nutrition to actually improve your fertility because maybe the process is impaired earlier on. You mentioned vitamin K earlier. How? What is like that in? Um, some cheeses and green leafy vegetables mostly. Yeah. yeah. Um, I mean, really, if you're eating a, a really good variety. You're gonna get vitamin K, but there's also like it would usually be in a multivitamin too. Okay. A good multivitamin. Um, so yeah, I have a little handout here about the, the first thing is about the thyroid, and so Hashimoto's or low thyroid. So Hashimoto's is an autoimmune disease where your body kind of attacks your thyroid. We don't totally know why, but we can definitely draw a strong connection with Hashimoto's and prolonged stress. Mm -hmm. And if it's an autoimmune thing, it means your body's kind of attacking itself, which means something has gone haywire, because your body's not supposed to do that. Sometimes if you can get your body to settle down, it'll stop pestering itself, stop hurting itself like that. Um, you can also just have a low thyroid without having Hashimoto's. So Hashimoto's is a pretty common cause of a low thyroid, but it's not the only case. You could just have a low thyroid, but your body's not attacking itself. Your thyroid's just low, and it just that's how it is. Um, so there's a lot of dietary things you can do for Hashimoto's. Um, the most important thing, I think, is just to notice when it's happening, because you can just slowly start to feel worse and worse and not really realize why. And I had a friend that this happened to. She'd already had a few kids, but this Hashimoto's kind of runs in her family and she just started to feel like crap. Just just like dragging herself through her day and just weird and palpitations and just ugh, just gross. And um, it took her a while to figure out that that's what it was. But she's, she's tried different diet things off and on and that did help. She, I don't think she's ever ended up going on medication and she was first diagnosed maybe five years ago. And she has found that it kind of comes and goes. The antibodies that they're measuring, if you're having a problem, they'll be measuring antibodies for your thyroid. It just kind of comes and goes for reasons that she can't totally explain. It does make her cycles unreliable. Um, she still has seven kids. 
in spite of this. So it's not a deal breaker in terms of fertility. It makes it a little harder to chart and avoid having kids, but they just kind of, since her fertility was unreliable, they just decided to not worry about it. So, and then, so if you have a low thyroid, there's this kind of whole list of symptoms, but we don't know why women are so much more prone to thyroid problems than men, but it's like 90% of people who are diagnosed with a thyroid problem are a woman. And it's just, you know, something we're more prone to. Men are more prone to heart disease and some other things when they're young. What exactly is a thyroid? Oh yeah, so your thyroid's a little gland around your neck. Okay. And it tends to, it um, is a big part of what regulates your metabolism. Okay. And of course, it's not the master of your metabolism. It's getting signals from different um, organs in your brain and other parts of your body. So one thing that we know will cause low thyroid in women is if you eat a low carb diet for a long period of time, longer than you need to. So if you're not solving a problem like polycystic ovary syndrome, and you're just like, I'm gonna eat a low carb diet so I can be 16% body fat because I'm a model. Mm. Over time, your body's like, whew, there's not much carbs in this environment. Like, there's clearly an energy shortage because eating a mix of foods tells your body, there's all sorts of foods out here in my environment. You can keep your my metabolism up at the regular rate and it'll be fine. But if you're never eating carbs, and you're exercising a ton and you're very lean, that tells your body like, phew, normally, you know, people who are exercising wanna eat carbs. If she's not eating carbs, they must just not be there. Clearly, there's an energy availability issue in this environment, and I'm gonna slow down her metabolism because she's not getting enough. Mm -hmm. so, to, so if you don't have a particular <coughs> metabolic problem that you're trying to solve, and you just like to like lose a little weight and you're eating low carb for that reason, a really common th way that women make sure their thyroid doesn't get the wrong message is to have carb refeed days. So you have one or two days a week where you eat more carbs. It doesn't have to be junk food. It's just like you eat a bunch of sweet potatoes, mango sorbet, a pile of strawberries, but you don't like wash your strawberries. You know, you eat your potatoes. You just eat a lot of healthy carbs and of course some bread and whatever else you want to have. So if you're always keeping it low carb for months to years, that in it, in itself can cause a low thyroid, even so, if it was a great idea at first. So like, for a time that's okay, but like, do vegetables count as like the carb, that kind of way? A lot of vegetables don't really even count. I mean, if you're being, yeah, if you're, if you, if you're like an epileptic who has to stay in ketosis and only be burning fat, maybe you want to track your potatoes. No, I don't think anyone in America has gotten fat from eating potatoes. I don't think, <laughs> just potatoes by themselves are not that exciting. Even though like potatoes have carbs and sweet potatoes have carbs and oranges have carbs. I mean, how many oranges can you eat? <laughs> Orange juice you can eat too much of and potato chips you can eat too much of because the fiber is gone, right? So it's easy to just keep going. But um, for most foods, if the fiber's included, it is just not worth agonizing about how many carbs they have. Especially if you're gonna eat that potato with some protein in a salad, it's like, for most people, if you have anything like a normal metabolism, it's, it doesn't even, it's not an issue to have your potato with your salad and your meat. Um, 
I mean, you're probably not going to sit there and eat five potatoes. I can sit there and eat eight oranges. When I've tried doing, like, paleo things, I'll be like, oh my gosh, I need carbs. And then I've yeah. sat there and ate eight oranges as my carb refeed. Mm, just kind that of, count? That's so funny. It would count. I mean, if you eat enough oranges, then you, you're getting, you know, I don't know, 150 grams of sugar from your oranges if you sit and eat a ton of them, which... And that's a healthy way to binge on carbs if you want to, because it comes with all these vitamins and fiber. But my point is, like, that's not really how most people do it. And my husband laughs at me. <laughs> bowl full of oranges like that for my for my treat. He's like, "Oh, you and your treats." <laughs> so, um, so, so yeah. When I was in college, I tried something called the Zone Diet, which actually they have the book on the shelf. And that's kind of a, a, like a moderate carb diet where you have about a one-to-one -one ratio of carbs and protein. So that would mean like an orange you would balance out with two eggs. So it's pretty low carb. After I lost the initial 10, 15 pounds that I kind of needed to lose from my freshman 15, this is this, my sophomore <laughs> first semester diet. Um, after I lost the weight, I needed to add more carbs back in and more fat. I, I couldn't eat endless amounts of protein because I wasn't bodybuilding. I wasn't that hungry for like huge amounts of protein every day. But once I had lost the extra weight and my insulin had normalized, my blood sugar had normalized, then I needed to, then I started putting olive oil on my eggs and eating two pieces of fruit instead of one. So the zone is a nice diet in the sense that it gives you these ratios to follow. If you're sure that you have insulin, if you suspect you have insulin resistance, like if you just eat sugar and you can't fill up and you don't get energy, or you have to eat tons of sugar to get energy lift from it, that could mean you have insulin resistance if you tend to gain weight, especially in your middle. Um, so I was the classic insulin resistant type. You know, I had the sweet tooth, I could kind of binge. Um, I, when I gained weight, I always gained in my middle. And then when I went on the zone diet, I lost like a pound a week for the whole first semester. So um, it was fairly painless. I just started not eating the carbs that weren't that special. Right? So I'd be like, oh, well, if I can have two pieces of fruit with my four eggs or my three eggs and sausage, it's, I just started eating a lot more protein and then eating less carbs. And I skipped the bread because I didn't like the bread on campus that much. I saved all my carbs for the desserts and the fruit. But then I knew how much protein to balance it out with, so I wouldn't spike my blood sugar. And I felt great. So it was a great experiment. But in the long term, when I'm nursing a baby, I can't eat like that. I just, it just like, you just kind of crash. And my sugar, my muscles don't get enough sugar. I'm not, if I don't carb load when I'm nursing a baby every couple of days, I feel like, you know, in those nightmares where you're like, running and your feet are stuck to the ground. Yes. <laughs> like that kind of level, uh, or I always feel like I just worked out for an hour and all I was doing was nursing my baby. So I was, I realized I wasn't getting enough sugar. I, so I can't low carbon nurse, some people can. I can't low carbon exercise. But if I'm being my sedentary self and just reading books, then I, I try not to binge on the carbs because it doesn't, it doesn't agree with me unless I have some place for it to go. That makes sense. Mm -hmm. So yeah, I have tended more towards the low carb side, the, the low thyroid side. After I had my first kid, it's very, very common to have thyroid problems after you have a baby. Um, at least like one in 10 women. Um, and after I had my first baby, I think my metabolism slowed way down. Mm. And then I remember complaining to my mom that I had lost 
even one pound of baby weight, and I think I gained weight. And I was like, Mom, nursing's supposed to take it right off. I'm 22. And she's like, you've got a low thyroid, Jen. you gotta got to get your thyroid vitamins. So she told me to get, grab this here. She told me to get kelp. And kelp is seaweed. And at the time, I wasn't eating any fish. So she said, go buy yourself some kelp and take one capsule a day. Sometimes there's tablets and they're even smaller than this. This supplement is basically as cheap as dirt because seaweed just grows in the ocean. They just harvest it and dry it out and put it in the capsules. So this bottle probably costs less than $10 and you only need one capsule a day. And if you miss a day, it doesn't matter. So this will last you almost like at least six months, maybe a year. So that's what I did after I had my first couple kids is I remembered to take this and the baby weight would come right off. Over time, as I got stocked up on my iodine and my body had better stores, um, I can't take this. I feel, I get hyperthyroid symptoms. I get, feel, I get hot prickly hands and feet. I get kind of a weird feeling in my neck if I take this, I don't need it anymore. But there was a time when it was really, really helpful and that was, I started taking it when my daughter was seven months old and I hadn't lost any baby weight. I just caved and ordered size 14 pants online was so demoralized by the time the pants came they were too big that's how fast it came off also if you're married and your husband wants you to be interested in sex after having a baby this is really important if your thyroid is low you will totally not be interested and that's not doing a favor for your husband so that's another reason to take care of that after you after you have a baby so it's, it's a really common thing to have happen we don't totally know why, but one pretty plausible theory is that when the baby's nursing, the baby needs iodine. If the baby doesn't have iodine, their brain won't develop. They will be, they can become retarded and not grow and even die just from not getting enough iodine. It doesn't happen very much in America anymore because we have iodized salt. But it used to be a problem in the Midwest. So the baby takes a lot of iodine, I think, through your milk, and I think that's why moms end up often very behind. And you can um, get it from fish, too. Yeah, you get it, if you're eating fish a lot, you might get, if you're eating seaweed snacks, if you like those little seaweed snacks, which I didn't eat when I only had my first couple kids, now the seaweed snacks are a more common thing in my house. My kids like them, so it's kind of something we eat. Um, another place, if you have really nutritious soil, you could even have iodine in dairy products that the grass eaten by the cows, but that varies very a lot from place to place, so you can't really count on that. Is that like the fish oil, like omega-3 stuff too? Is that like um, when you take fish oil, you're getting the oil. You're probably not getting any iodine from that. So it's good for you for different reasons. Okay, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And is there anything else that nursing like takes away from your body? Well, kind of, I mean, it's at least 500 calories a day, which is okay. great for losing baby weight. Um, but I find that I get very, very tired nursing. And so I, the, the last couple of kids, I started taking a liver powder because it brings my iron back up. And I just don't, I don't need to nap. And that's one of the things I wanted to talk about too, is that it's so common to be anemic. Um, at least 20% of women test as anemic, but this is a very crude test. The way we test anemia is that we look for how many red blood cells you have per unit of standardized unit. And your body makes red blood cells partly out of the iron stores you have. 
but you really need red blood cells. You have to have a certain amount circulating or you will just turn blue and not have enough oxygen and then ultimately die. So your body will do everything it can to make you enough red blood cells until it has absolutely almost no iron left. So a better test, which you can order, but you have to request it, is to actually check how much iron is in your system, not how many red blood cells you have. Because by the time your body can't make as many red blood cells, your iron stores are usually almost gone. So I've had, I had a friend who the midwife eventually said, you know, you're not testing as anemic, but you, you look so exhausted. You're pale, your lips are pale. You are telling me you're tired all the time. We need to do a better test. And it turned out she had almost no iron stores. And then when she started supplementing that, she's like, oh, is this how everyone else feels? You know, I just had to drag myself through every single day. And one sign of iron deficiency can be irritability, not just fatigue. Because, of course, if you are exhausted and you have to keep going, you're going to feel cranky. It's pretty, pretty normal. And that's, for kids, that's actually, um, I knew a kid who was very anemic. Her lips got so pale, they were basically the same color as her face. And she was sad all the time. She wasn't tired because she was desperately trying to keep up with her little brothers, her big brothers. Um, but she was miserable, so that was kind of um, a sign. So, mm-hmm. so how is iodine and iron deficiency linked exactly? Oh, they're not necessarily linked. Depends okay. on what you're eating. Yeah, okay. but they're different reasons why you might feel tired. So if you if you weren't getting enough iodine because you weren't eating any seafood or taking kelp, then your body, your thyroid will just turn down a couple notches, and then you'll feel cold and sluggish and maybe brain foggy and have all these kind of low thyroid symptoms. There's a whole list on the, on the chart. And dry skin, constipation, brittle hair. There's a big collection, yeah? So could you have like symptoms of a low thyroid, but it would be a problem like that, like just a deficiency? It could be, yeah, yeah. And I, I would always say that's the first place to start. If you have a low, if you have low thyroid symptoms, but you just haven't been eating any iodine, then it could be a question of supply because the body just can't run the chemical reactions that it wants to run. If you are eating fish and you're still, and you're maybe took some kelp, then I would look at other signs of fatigue. You could just, you could go get your thyroid check, but there's also a bunch of other things you should rule out. And so the other reason, if you're tired, it could be that you're anemic, right? you don't have enough iron. It can also just mean you're not eating enough overall. There's also something called B vitamin anemia, where you're just not getting enough protein in your diet. So there's all different reasons. And if you really read the list very carefully, you might be able to distinguish, like, oh yeah, I'm anemia tired, not hypothyroid tired. And if you could look at your diet too. Many people end up anemic because they don't eat eggs and meat every day. There's a lot of, iron is in so many foods, basically iron is in almost all real foods. There's some amount of iron. But we absorb the animal form so much better than we absorb the plant form. It's like it's like a total like order of magnitude difference of how well you absorb it. So if you're going to be a vegetarian or a vegan and you want to have not be anemic, you have to be very, very conscientious and probably supplement. You can't be like a quesadilla vegetarian and be healthy. You, 
there's basically almost no iron in a case in the tortilla. <laughs> there's almost no iron in the cheese. If you're like a black beans and quinoa and leafy greens kind of vegetarian, you might get enough iron. But I, I but it's still not it's not guaranteed. It depends on how well you absorb it. And people vary in how well they absorb iron. Some people absorb iron too well. And this is more of a problem for guys, but they'll accumulate extra iron in their tissues to the point that it causes a bunch of problems. Um, women don't tend to get this problem because we bleed every month, so at least, it, or they don't notice it until they go through menopause and they stop bleeding, and then you get all these weird symptoms. So a certain percentage, a small percentage of people accumulate iron too readily. I suspect, though nobody's named this disorder yet, I suspect there are also people who don't accumulate iron, who really don't accumulate it very well at all. Because I know people who the only way they could get their iron up was to supplement and cut out grains and cut out dairy, which is not typical. Mm. So they're really like a poor absorber and they have to ri and ramp it up. Uh, dark chocolate also has iron, so that's perfect. But for me, even though I like eating eggs and I like protein and I like meat, it's far, far simpler for me to take this, take uh, about six of these a day. These are just dried out liver powder. So they take, the, uh, the cow stores a lot of nutrients, especially iron in its liver. So this is about equivalent to like one ounce of liver. If I fried up liver in a pan, of course it takes up less space when it's dried. So I don't mind swallowing pills and I really don't like liver. So this is the best <laughs> solution for me. It's so fair. <laughs> um, so I just try to take like six of these a day. And if I do that, I can nurse my two and a half year old, she's a very active child and probably takes a thousand calories a day for me at this point. And, uh, <laughs> and I just, I don't need to nap, which is enormously convenient as a mom. If I don't take these, I don't feel bad all day. I'm not, I don't get bad anything, but I'll wake up and I'll feel fine. And then I really want my nap after lunch and then I'll, nap and recharge. So life would go on if I didn't have these. But it's a lot more convenient to not need to nap. And I just like that. I like, over time, I have a really great sense of physical resilience. Like if I miss it, if I have a poor night of sleep, or if I don't eat very well one day, if I have a day I'm just kind of on the road and kind of just shoves in my mouth, it doesn't matter. It's a little bit of a cushion for me against just being sloppy and the rest of my life. So I, it's been a it's been a game changer to take it. Also, there's vitamin A and choline, which is thought to be especially important for um, fertility, and some B vitamins. And if you accumulate enough vitamin A in your body over time, you will tend to not get allergies, which is also very convenient. Again, you, know, you could take Claritin, you could take herbs that will mitigate your allergies. There's a lot of solutions, but I have found that um, when I like last started taking it much more consistently last fall, and when spring came, it just it wasn't a thing. I just didn't get allergies really. There are a few days instead of like weeks, you know. So, what are low iron symptoms? Um, there's a, I I think we put a list. I think there's a yeah. list in there, but um, basically just fatigue, um, slow wound healing. I think uh, heart palpitations is one of them. Mm -hmm. Is that is that normal for your iron to be really low when you're bleeding? I mean, if you get it checked during your period. Yeah. Um, 
it shouldn't be, I mean, it shouldn't be out of the ballpark low. And it if you if you tested it low, if you tested it and it came out low and it was at the end of your period, then I would try to get it rechecked at a different point in your cycle. So try to get it checked, you know, at day 21 or something. See if it's bounced back up into the normal range. The other thing is that when they test your red blood cells, they're looking for a certain range of like 11 to 14 or 15. Um, I've seen from experience with all my pregnancies, and you get checked when you're pregnant a lot, that for me, if, I, if I'm down at 11, I am feeling white. Even though that's technically in the range of normal, for me that's just really not a happy place. If I'm, tested, if I'm at 13, I feel fine. So where, you know, where your body wants your iron to be might be somewhat individual. That's the case for most other hormones. Where your body would like your estrogen or progesterone or something to be is kind of individual. We tend to not get things checked until there's a problem. So most people don't say, I feel amazing. Get all my blood work right now, doctor. <laughs> so I'll have it for reference later in case I have a problem and I'll know these are my ideal numbers, right? Um, so if you're, if you're troubleshooting and you're looking at your blood work, there can be a little trial and error. And you need to go with how you feel as well as the numbers. So uh, yeah, the, I listed some iron-rich foods um, just in case. And then, yeah. If you have vitamin C with your iron, it makes you absorb it a lot better, um, which goes well. Like, you know, steak and broccoli, broccoli beef and, what? Sorry. Yeah. <laughs> and, um, you know, our kids like uh, like black bean and, and chicken and their quesadillas, so you get a little iron in there with your quesadilla. If you just... I think that the iron thing might be part of why many people feel better on a paleo diet. Not that they were actually intolerant of dairy, maybe they weren't actually intolerant of grains, but bite for bite, a paleo diet has more nutrients because a bell pepper or a tomato has more nutrients than a piece of white bread, bite for bite. So I think that just helps you tend to absorb your iron better. So um, you might not need to go full on paleo to get your iron up, but just be aware that Combining the vitamin C with your iron-rich protein source, such as your eggs or your meat, can make a big difference. Occasionally, people do not tolerate iron supplements well. They have like touchy digestion. So if you were to get something like this, you might just start with one and kind of ease up to it. So most people tolerate it great, but I've known a couple people who just get like stomach cramps and stuff from taking too much iron at once. And they just have to really mostly just do it through their diet. So if that's your, how your body works, you just have to really eat a lot of meat and eggs. And I, I, in this book, yeah, I included some pictures of different prenatal vitamins, in case, because the best time to take prenatal vitamins is before you get married, before you get pregnant. Ideally, you'd be taking them months before, because if, if there is a window to prevent a birth defect, it is probably before. Um, because it is thought that having the right nutrients in your system helps the DNA to split evenly down the middle. The way you get Down syndrome or other, some other birth defects is that the DNA doesn't split cleanly and you have extra bits that then combine with something else. It's more likely when you're older, that's just unavoidable. Um, but it's also thought that in some cases, not every case, in some cases this might relate to nutritional deficiencies. So that's a theory. So these, so prenatal vitamins in general are for like 
promoting the health of the baby, not like promoting fertility. Well, in many cases, they would promote fertility. Some people find that um, getting on vitamins makes their cycles more regular mm -hmm. because they just have more nutrients. So say your cycles are typically 35 or 40 days because you're a little bit anemic or you're just not eating quite enough. If you get on vitamins and you maybe eat more, your cycles will probably come closer to 28 days and it'll be, then everything is just running like clockwork since you're more, it's probably gonna be easier to get pregnant. Like I said, I know people with 40 day cycles that have five kids and it didn't really inhibit them getting pregnant. But if you, if you wanted to have the easiest time or just have the clearest way to chart, that's um, taking vitamins often helps. The gummy vitamins, which is kind of funny, Gummy vitamins are kind of cheesy, but they're very convenient if you don't like swallowing pills. There's also liquid vitamins. One thing that's useful about the gummy vitamins is if you are iron intolerant, gummy vitamins basically never have iron in them. Because if a kid eats this whole bottle and it had iron at the, at the amount that a typical vitamin has, they could die. Um, it's just it's very bad for you to get too much iron at once. So they don't put it in gummies. They don't put anything that you could really overdose on into gummies. They don't they don't they can eat foods with iron but they don't tolerate iron supplements or they can tolerate only a small oh, amount okay. at a time. So they're somehow their iron processing machinery mm -hmm. is very limited. And I I don't know that we fully know why. Like they don't make enough enzymes or something. Mm -hmm. But I know people who can take just a little bit at a time. So I was talking with a mom who is pregnant and very tired and in the past, she hasn't tolerated iron supplements well, but she'd worked her way up to taking like six or seven of these a day before she got pregnant. But once she got pregnant, she didn't want to take any supplements for a while because she just felt a little nauseous and she just wanted to you know, eat boring food. And then when she tried to go back, she couldn't take more than three. So she, she'd lost her like tolerance for it. And, and again, we don't really know why, but um, yeah. So yeah, the gummy ones are nice if you really don't want to, um, swallow things but of course the gummy ingredients take up a certain amount of space so these ones have more nutrient density the non-gummy ones have more nutrient density or you can just take a lot of gummies um, and another way to approach vitamins or just prenatal vitamins in general is just to take individual things like this so these are combo formulas where they kind of put it all together in amounts that seem to be the right amounts based on all of our research but um, with one of my kids, I did this different approach where I just took a bunch of like healthy pregnancy herbs and I took liver and I took royal jelly and all these kind of whole food supplements. So there's a lot more pills, but, it ne but I, never got, um, I never got any nausea from the vitamins, which is what I was trying to avoid. And so, and she's healthy, so it seemed like it worked. Um, so there's different, some people just like to take like a whole food supplement, like you could take like things that you could eat, but you get them as a supplement so you don't have to take the time to eat them. So maybe you get like a, um, ground, like greens, like a green supplement, or like a ground up berries or something like, and you powder you can put in your juice. So it's like, well, I'm not gonna have time to like wash and chop my greens every day, but I'll take that supplement. Or I'm not gonna cook liver because I don't like the taste, but I really want the benefits of it, so I, I use this. Um, any questions about that? I, I have one more about the, um, actually about iodine. Yeah. I've often been diagnosed with low sodium levels. Would that have any like 
like it, it always puzzled the doctors. Would that oh. have any correlation with like low iodine? Um, well, in America, the most we get iodine through our salt. Yeah. Did your family not salt their food? No, we always did. Really? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So if you're salting your food and your sodium is still testing low, I would think that somehow your kidney is just being too active in how it excretes mm -hmm. your sodium. Okay. Um, it's not keeping the sodium in. And so that's probably just like a, a something about your metabolism that's a little funny. Um, yeah, so it's a, it's a bigger question. But so yeah, this kelp, seaweed is salty. Yeah. But... Um, you're not eating it primarily for the salt, you're eating it mostly for the minerals in the oh, kelp. Okay. Um, it probably wouldn't, yeah. I would guess that you need to do something to help your kidneys be happier and keep more of the sodium in. But I'm not sure what that would be. Okay. Yeah. Okay. yeah. Um, I have another question. Yeah. Um, so with these, these are just to supplement like healthy foods like, like the, the liver and the and the greens, or would you have to, would you want to make sure you need this before um, you start taking okay. them? Sorry, would you want to make sure you what? Do you want to, is there, do you need to know if you need to take these before you start taking them? Yeah, I, yeah, that's a good them? question. I would say if you have, um, if you have particular health concerns, like if you have depression or PMS or anxiety or fatigue, you would probably benefit from taking vitamins for a period of time because whatever you've been doing for your food hasn't been quite enough. Right? It doesn't necessarily mean you're gonna have to take them for the long term, but it can definitely get you over the hump. Okay. And if you've tried different things to help your PMS or whatever and it hasn't really figured it all out, then if you've done all the diet things, it might be time to add some vitamins. I would say if you're planning to, if you're getting married and you're planning to get pregnant in the next six months, I would take vitamins kind of no matter what. There's too much at stake. I mean, I'm, I'm a risk-averse person. If there's any benefit from it, um, it makes sense to me that you would just take it. You, you know, you're gonna feel better when you're pregnant if you're in a better condition physically. So anything you can do to make that happen, you're gonna you're gonna just enjoy your pregnancy more, um, and your baby might be healthier. You know, um, there are certain things that we know, like if your blood sugar is running very high when you're pregnant, we know that that causes heart defects kind of a weird thing that you wouldn't think about. Mm -hmm. Sorry, if what's running high? If your blood sugar is running very high mm -hmm. when you're pregnant. Um, again, it's more common with older people because people's blood sugar tends to be less efficient as they get older, but like there's a lot of reasons. Not, and of course, if your blood sugar is more normal before you get pregnant, you're less likely to get gestational diabetes. You're likely to let, gain less weight when you're pregnant and just feel more you know, healthy. So there's a lot of reasons. Um, but yeah, if you're feeling fine and you just kind of need minor tweaks, you're like, oh, I kind of get cramps. Like, let's try that exercise and water thing. You probably don't need vitamins yet if you're not if you're not engaged in um, looking at having a baby. So, and for teenage girls, when I think it's still the case for most college girls, if if all you're looking for is having smoother cycles, usually exercise and some extra vegetables will be sufficient. Um, it's usually people don't have huge nutritional deficiencies, you know, by the time they're 15 or 20, if you've been eating mostly real food, so. Mm -hmm. um, but the iron thing seems to be harder to keep up on in college. They're not serving you red meat every night. If you don't like eggs, like, there go your options, right? So if I had known about this in college, I think I would have taken it then. If I, if it, I heard about liver powder, but it wasn't really on my radar. 
Um, <laughs> just, is it just red meat or does chicken also have it? Chicken has some too, but yeah, but red meat has more. And liver has much more than red meat. Okay. Oh. So that's why liver, mm -hmm. people used to eat liver and onions and bacon and yeah. just kind of fell out of our culture. Mm -hmm. My mom still does it. Oh really? Yeah, <laughs> for generation, yeah. And so is it good to take the iron before you know you have an iron deficiency? <laughs> yeah, well, could you, well, you basically, could you get too much? Right? Yeah. So what your body, that's a great question. What your body tends to do is if you had, <laughs> if you just went on some crazy red meat diet, your body would just adjust so you would absorb less. Unless you have that actual genetic disorder where you're destined to absorb too much, um, your body will adjust your absorption of most nutrients, actually, depending on how much you need it. So it basically like opens the gates if you are really short on something and it'll like gather it all in. But if you have too much, they'll be like, yeah, I'll just poop it out. So, yes. I'm talking about liver. Isn't it also bad, like, if you have a lot of liver, if you have, I can't remember, is it, like, low thyroid or something? So, yeah, there's an interesting interaction between your um, your thyroid and your adrenal glands. So your adrenal glands are kind of like your kidneys and what kind of runs your overall energy in your, in your, in your system. And the thyroid kind of runs your metabolism. More, more than once, I've encouraged someone and said, oh, you felt like you're having low thyroid symptoms. Go get some kelp. And they go get some kelp. And they take the kelp, and they feel much better and drop some weight. But then after about a month, they start to feel not so great again. And what's happening, as far as we can tell, is if somebody has a bunch of nutritional deficiencies, and that's what was slowing down the metabolism, right? That's what was telling their thyroid take everything down a couple notches, the environment is not helping us. Um, if you then ramp up their thyroid, their metabolism speeds up, they feel better, but they still have the nutrient deficiencies. So now I tell people, yeah, take the kelp, but you also need to take a multivitamin and eat more protein because otherwise you'll just be telling your body, like, whip the horse harder and faster, and then you'll hit the wall after about a month, and you'll be like, oh, I feel just as bad as before, but for kind of a different reason. So that in that case, your thyroid's getting enough um, nutrients, but the the other nutrients aren't sufficient to help the, your whole system. And kelp and liver pearls are the same, right? No, no. Kelp is a kelp is a weed. Like the picture. It's a it's seaweed basically. They just take it in. And liver, it's it's like the liver from uh, from happy cows in New Zealand, and they just <laughs> like, yeah, you know. <laughs> Um, so I would say, yeah, you may or may not need the kelp if you like fish. I know they always have tuna on campus, so if you're eating tuna regularly, you're, you might be covered for the kelp, but you might, if you're not getting the red meat, or you're not eating eggs, you might want to consider the liver. You might see, and you can just get a bottle or two and just see if you feel better. If you feel a little sluggish, or you feel like you really like to nap every day, and you have to power through with your cup of coffee, then this might, this might make your life better. Are there alternatives to like kelp or fish that do the same thing? I can't eat like any sort of seafood and I don't know about this mm -hmm. one, but. Um, so even, even the seaweed? Um, I can, I just have to be really careful on sources. So like most of them you can and you have, I have to like find it like super purified. So is it sources. like a, is it like an extreme shellfish histamine allergy? Um, or? I'm super allergic to shellfish and then also like allergic to flatfish too, just like they would kill me. Yeah, right, right. Maybe a kind of cross-contamination thing or whatever. Yeah, I would say 
Well, that's going to be kind of an expensive experiment trying different health supplements out, right? <laughs> have you exper have you found any any that seem pure enough? Uh, there's well, there's one that mom can have. So. Yeah, it's yeah. Just, like they're a lot more expensive than get. Right. If it's a special mm -hmm. one, yeah, yeah. Okay. You could you can just buy like iodine liquid. I don't think that's really recommended as a supplement, but it used to be like you put iodine in drops for like an anti antibacterial. So I know that they can just get iodine out of the, the ocean or whatever and just concentrate just iodine. Um, so you could try that, or maybe just stick with the one your mom is having and then just try to buy bulk. I also really find it helpful to read the Amazon reviews for different supplements because sometimes it'll be like, this is the best supplement ever. So I always go and read the one and two star reviews, mm -hmm. and it'll say things like, this totally disagreed with me, this gave me heart palpitations, this seemed contaminated, and it'll be people who are a little more sensitive, but they, they write about their experiences in detail, and that, I find that really, really helpful. And also, I think certain brands are, are um, there's like food grade, and then there's farm, pharmaceutical grade, where it's like, um, they call it like GMP, good manufacturing practice, but also like pharmaceutical grade is a higher like laboratory standard of how they process it. So that might that might help kind of just um, narrow it down if you look for that. So okay. Um, so I don't know how much time we have. Let me see. I had a couple more. Let me just see if there's anything in my notes that I forgot. Is there any app that you recommend for charting? Oh, for cycle? There's there's so many apps. Um, my daughter has one called Clue. Clue, yeah. That's a Clue app. Yeah, and you can kind of go in and change the settings for like, what am I actually going to track? So okay. it's not a bunch of extra stuff. So my daughter uses that one. Um, you can always just do it on your calendar too. You know, just super, super basic. Develop some kind of code system for yourself. Like, never look at yeah, <laughs> I know someone who um, realized that his co her, his coworker would have these explosions, these random explosions oh, no. at certain times, and he's like, huh? He was homeschooled, so he had some candor from his mother and sister about cycles. So he's like, huh? He started tracking. <laughs> so he ultimately ended up with a period chart of, of several women in his office. Oh, <laughs> it was like 28 to 30 to 31 and then as I got more active and I don't know I'm older I'm not sure why so if you have a 25 day cycle it could be that you ovulate on day 14 and then your hormones drop very fast a little faster than they need to or ought to it could also be that you ovulate like day 10 and when I started to notice my cycle getting shorter at first I kind of freaked out I was like oh and I went online to the interwebs and looked at some Rooms and said, Can I get pregnant on a short cycle? Basically, are things still going to work? And all these people have said, Oh, yeah, I always ovulate day eight or day nine. And I have three kids, and everything works fine. So, 
Again, we don't we don't totally know why. It could be that I'm like a little too amped up or something. Um, maybe I'm taking too much of something. But my my last baby, I think I ovulated on day ten, and it, yeah, everything did work fine. So you would have to kind of go. You'd have to track your temperature to be sure of when you're ovulating, but you can also look at your mucus signs. So mm -hmm. if you're ovulating on day 14, what'll tend to happen is from about day 10 to 15 is when you'd have the mucus, just put yeah. a big end there. And if you're having shorter cycles, it'll start on maybe day seven and go to day, you know, 11. Okay. It, so usually, that's about when the mucus starts to dry up is about when you're ovulating. Oh, okay. The point of the mucus is so that sperm can ride through the mucus and get to the egg. So it's designed to be there before the egg would pop out. Because as Aristotle says, nature acts for an end. So <laughs> if, the, if the sperm have this great road to ride in and they're there when the egg pops out, then it's very easy, then that's very easy to get pregnant. So. So yeah, if, you, if you're seeing that you get mucus at an earlier point in the month, you could assume, even without tracking your temperature, mm -hmm. you could assume that you're ovulating earlier and that you still have that 14-day luteal phase and it's actually fine. You just run okay. on the fast side. But it is kind of bad to have a shorter luteal phase? Like, if your hormones, if you are ovulating like on day 14, yeah, and yeah. your hormones so are just dropping really fast. Basically, a 12 to 14-day luteal phase, you can count on that being probably enough to stay pregnant. If it's under 10, oh. under 9 or 10, that's when you start to be like, yeah, this is, you're going to probably need some help. So there's this and kind of gray zone in the middle where it's okay. like if it's a 9 to 12 day luteal phase, it might be fine, it might not. Okay. And then the, like, what you would do is you take the supplements. The that's right. You So some people find that just making their diet more nutritious, like my those examples I gave my friends, mm -hmm. makes their luteal phase on that day or two long. Um, or and then it, and uh, I mean over the course of several months, mm -hmm. not not usually the first month, but yeah, you can also get the progesterone supplements and just have it. Yeah. You mentioned earlier your friend who worked out consistently, but then needed to work out like an hour and a half more. Was that before her cycle started? Yeah. So that last week, so she she was having a lot of mood stuff. She was getting really really cranky, and just just her, like emotions kind of all over the place. And, and she was doing a lot of other things for it. She was taking good care of herself and getting enough sleep and eating real food. But she just makes a lot of hormones. I think it's her family trait to just have a very abundant supply of hormones. So she just really has to help things along to process it. Um, so that's why I suggest, suggested for her to work out for an hour and a half instead of, so instead like of 35 the minutes. After she was bleeding? No, uh, the week before, the next bleeding. So it's when you're just about to start bleeding oh, gotcha. again. It's at the end of your cycle. Yeah. What if, it, what if it takes longer to ovulate, like in the other direction? Yeah, so this could be, this means that somewhere in here, your body is thinking there's not enough resources to make this happen, right? It takes energy. It takes calories. At least 800 calories, but maybe more, to ovulate. <laughs> just for the ovulation, not for all the hormones. Just, but the whole process just takes calories. Mm -hmm. So if it's Lent and you're not eating any sweets, I've heard of girls losing their period during Lent because the sweets were oh the thing that were making them get enough calories. Um, if, you, if you have a really stressful week right in here at the end of your period, or you just don't eat very much, or you're anemic, 
all of those things can delay your ovulation because it takes your body longer to get the resources together to make it happen. And how do you track your luteal phase? How can you see whether it's nine days or 14 days? Is it just judging so, when your period starts? Um, yeah, so when, from whenever you can assume you're ovulating by your mucus, or if you want to, you can get these little pee strips. You can pee on them. And I could show you, I've been experimenting with this if you're interested, but basically it makes, it'll be like a, pee, like a little test strip where it's got like the control and the test. And the test will be very light. And then, you know, control and test, and the test is very light again. Right before you ovulate, it gets very dark because you're testing for this hormone, the luteinizing hormone that's stimulating ovulation. So you'll get two dark lines. And then the next day, in my experience, it fades quite rapidly and you get back to a light line. So it's very clear, but like the two days before. So people use this to help get pregnant, or if you're just charting, it could be information to help you confirm that you're interpreting everything correctly. So if you've been tracking your mucus, but maybe you don't make very much mucus, um, you run a little on the drier side, maybe you're a smoker, even I think just even drinking I think can make a difference for some people. Mm. Uh, or maybe it's a really dry time of year and you're just kind of dry all over. So all of those can make a difference. And so if you can't, if you don't see clear mucus signs for four days, three or four days, then you might not feel sure about when you've ovulated. Some people cramp when they ovulate. That would be another sign. Mm. But if you don't have, you know, if you don't see mucus, you might not have much to go on. So you could get these pee strips and you just start peeing on them like, are you dipping them, I don't know, like day eight or nine, if you're really curious. And just do it until you see that line get darker one morning, and then test it the next day, you'll see it get lighter, and you're like, huh, okay. Basically, once it gets darker, that means that the luteinizing hormone has peaked, mm -hmm. and the egg will come out in the next 12 to 36 hours. You said it's out for about two days. It's, wor it's viable for about two days, yeah. Okay. I mean, so it's out, it can be fertilized in it for about 48 hours, we think, at the outside, and then at that point it just starts, starts to deteriorate. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, so it's gonna come out, and then 48 hours is the limit. But sperm also lives. What? But sperm also like lives. So it doesn't, you don't have to just. So it's not just that. Just way. for two days? Yeah, okay. No, nope, nope. you have to abstain for at least a week. Yeah. Okay. More like 10 days if you want to feel confident that you're not going to get pregnant. So, just so you know, you feel glorious things about MSP, but <laughs> this is the time of month when you're going to be most interested because nature does act for men. <laughs> and that only becomes more so the older you get. Um, MSP is more irritating. It's been more irritating in my 30s than it ever was in my 20s. I don't know why, but... Um, your hormones get much more assertive. So my friend was joking with me about this the other day. She's like, she's like, she's got an eight-month-old on the floor. She's got seven kids. Husband's out chopping wood with his shirt on, off. And she's like, I can do this again. I can, I can do this. <laughs> <laughs> and she had to talk herself out of it. She's like, chill out, chill out. You're totally overwhelmed with your seven kids, 13 and under. <laughs> and then, after the egg is not viable, he said, she said, you know, it's day 18, she's out chopping wood, and she's like, eh, yeah, it's <laughs> <laughs> So, the difference can be quite, 
comically <laughs> dramatic. But, um, but so the, the thing is, there is, yes, sperm can live for at least five days. They used to say three, and then they had to say four, and then they had to say five, and now some people say six. Wow. And there is no test that we know of that will predict your ovulation five days in advance. <laughs> so if you need to prevent pregnancy, you need several months of cycles to know when you are likely to ovulate. Mm -hmm. And my baby that ovulated on day 10, she was our day five surprise baby. Yeah, she's wonderful, but it was <laughs> in many respects a terrible time to not mm -hmm. to get pregnant. It was, I had very good reasons, but I had not ovulated on day 10 in the year, the prior year that I'd been charting. Wow. I had, so this is definitely divine intervention, wow. obviously, two or three years before that, when I had not been charting my temperatures, but just charting mucus, I had suspected I was sometimes ovulating on day nine or 10, but it hadn't happened recently. So I thought, oh, day five should be fine. And it should be fine. If you're ovulating on day 12, none of those sperm would be alive by the time the egg pops out. But if you ovulate on day 10, two days earlier than the earliest I was expecting, then it was not. So then we had, we had a little baby. So, um, so if you have a really significant reason to avoid pregnancy, you probably aren't gonna do much here. You have the option to basically sleep with your husband during your period. If you have any chance that you might ovulate early, if that's ever been your tendency, like you know, this is your, this is probably your tendency, then you would abstain until you are certain that you have ovulated. So you're basically abstaining from day one, if you don't feel like doing it on your period, all the way till day 17. And you have one week. So <laughs> it's... 10 days to enjoy yourself after that. <laughs> so, so this is a significant commitment. So, you, yeah. so yeah. Sorry, so it's after the day of ovulation? That well, actually, you have to wait a full two or three days after ovulation to be sure that the egg is not viable. Uh, okay. So if you, see the, if you see the strip spike, you're ovulating probably in the next 24 hours. Mm -hmm. Then the egg is viable for another 48 hours after that. So you have to leave at least three days after that. Okay. So it's right before ovulation that you're really Yeah, if you're, if you're trying to get pregnant, you're looking for this line to get darker, and then you really enjoy yourselves during this time, and then you, you have your best chance. Yeah, Because you're trying to have the sperm reach the egg just as it gets popped out, and the egg is the healthiest. If you, for some reason your eggs are not amazing, you want to catch them right when they come out, because they might not last actually the full 48 hours. Does that make sense? Yeah. So, um, you mentioned the temperature and then the mucus. What do you recommend, like, just for starting out for charting? Like, what are the best ways to keep yeah. track of? Like, probably, um, the simplest thing is probably mucus if you have clear mucus signs. And then the next simplest thing is the pee sticks, if you want to just buy a pack of those online. Then the third simplest thing, if you want the next degree of confirmation is to do your temperature. Mm -hmm. The catch with the temperature is you're supposed to take your temperature before you get up and moving because it's not your walking around temperature. It's called your basal mm -hmm. body temperature, BBT. So it's your like your low th temperature, the way your body goes down to a baseline temperature while you sleep. So you're typically sticking this thermometer in your mouth at like 
five or six in the morning before you get up to pee, before you have a wa water or anything. Now, I've, um, some people, their temperature is very touchy and it goes up as soon as they get up and have to go to pee, go to pee or do anything. Um, for other people, they learn from experience. They check it before they get out of bed and then they check it after 10 minutes and it doesn't go up that fast. So that's something that's good to learn about yourself if, you, mm -hmm. if you're gonna use this kind of charting. I don't think mine was super touchy when I did it. It's just I'm not back in the habit of doing that right now. So I've been using these more because it's a little simple. You can check this any time of day. If you're trying to really precisely determine when you're ovulating, you might check a couple times a day during those days when it's getting darker. And you're like, oh, this is, I really want to be curious. Is it the morning or the evening when it's peaking or something like that? For the measles test, what does it stop right before you ovulate, or when? It seems to. I think for most people, yeah. So, so it's like two to three days before your egg drops is when you have measles, like that. That's how right. you like. Yeah, exactly. Yep, yeah, yep. Yeah. So the, I'm not an NFP teacher or an, an, for of any particular method, but a, a typical rule, if you're trying to get pregnant, of course you're doing it when you have the mucus. If you're trying to avoid pregnancy, you wait peak day, peak day of mucus, which is usually like the day before you ovulate, the day you okay. ovulate, plus five more days you wait. Peak plus four, peak plus five, is how long you would wait to be certain that you've ovulated and then you're unlikely to get pregnant. Okay. Still a 1% chance, but. Do you think you're gonna probably have the most mucus the day before you're ovulating? Yeah, mm -hmm. okay. yeah, maybe two days before, yeah, but somewhere in there, yeah. Or if you don't, if you tend to not have regular mucus signs and you've, you've died in, coffee and stuff is generally pretty normal. A really simple way to get more mucus signs, if you want it to be more clear, is to eat more root vegetables. <laughs> and I had a friend from college who uh, called me and she's like, I just can't get pregnant, I can't get pregnant. The year after, we were all both married uh, a year after college. And I remembered my friend, she had very dry skin. She was a redhead and um, like dry hair. And I thought, hmm, and I learned some things about this in, um, Herbal Chinese medicine school. And I said, you know, they say they say you should eat a bunch of seeds and a bunch of root vegetables and yams and carrots. And so, you know, that's free. You're gonna eat anyway. Just try it before you go get a bunch of progesterone cream or go get a bunch of blood work done. Just try that. And I didn't hear from her, so I was like, oh, maybe it didn't work. And the next thing I heard is like, oh, she had a baby. So <laughs> yeah. yeah, it was that simple. There's also, you can take cough syrup. There's other ways to get more clear mucus signs that people do if they are really trying. Um, but I would just say try the root vegetables first. You know, it's, yeah. they're good for you anyway, and it, it really makes it clear. Um, I'm not epic on root vegetables, but you know, generally if you're healthy, they'll, you'll see some mucus, and it's, it helps you determine. Um, I mean, when I was in college, I started paying attention before I got married, and I, don't, I didn't eat root vegetables every day in college. But I eat them when they were there. So that's that's probably gonna be enough. You said that one one thing that can cause a long longer period is if you're just ovulating late and you so like you just fix that with like better nutrition. Maybe. In most cases, yes. Is there anything else? Is there like any? Is there anything else that can cause like a later irregular periods and like when that would be something needs to be fixed? Well, uh, you know, if you look at if you Google this which is always a little scary for health questions, right? <laughs> yeah. There'll be a list this long of all the things that can cause irregular periods. And there are remote possibilities like fibroids or some kind of uterine malformation or some weird disease. Mm -hmm. there, are, there are other causes. Mm -hmm. So if you 
if you've really done all the other stuff and they're still a regular, then you might need to look into some of the more like unlike the less likely causes. So there are other causes, yeah. Um, well, like for also for like just longer periods besides early ovulation, will work. Or late um, besides late ovulation, it could be that they're so you could have the late ovulation and also the hormones not processing quickly on this end. So you, and it's possible to have both. Mm -hmm. Yeah, um, it's also possible, like we talked about, the polycystic ovary syndrome that can also make them long and somewhat irregular. Um, but would that be unlikely, like if you don't have any other symptoms, or if, like even if like if your if your period's like if you're like bleeding normally. I know, like, I kind yeah. of bleed normally, but, like, I never, I, I maybe feel little cramps for, like, a day or so, but it's, like, it's never crippling or anything, and I just Yeah, if your skin's normal, you're not binging on sweets, you don't get tons of cramps, although cramps is not always there with PCOS. Cramps is pretty much always there with endometriosis. Mm -hmm. Um, yeah, the, uh, there is, there is some variation. It could be that you're, you're sensitive to something like light in your bedroom or just something kind of random mm -hmm. it is or that your your sleep wake cycle or that if you if you go to a party so it could be that um that there's other factors that are making it a little different every month the other thing is if you've only had your cycle for a couple of years it tends to not look like clockwork the first couple of years so if you just if you got your cycle later some families like kids the girls don't get their cycle until they're 16. so if you're new to cycling it can be a little less reliable at first but if it's been like six years <laughs> yeah but is it is it like is it like 29 to 35 days is like a huge rate is it like a small range or is it like 21 to 50 days is it like it's like 20 like 29 to 35 okay yeah so that that to me is like a that's a pretty small range that it's shifting between so i my guess is that some months you just have like a really busy <coughs> couple of days and you ovulate a little bit late mm -hmm. and then maybe you also have another day tacked on here and then other months everything just works a little faster and smoother and those are your 29 days okay so having a pay for a weekend can do it I, yeah, I would think so, yeah. Yeah. Yep. Also, oh, I've heard, oh, I don't know how true this is, I'm asking, I've heard that families that have, um, it's like, if your mother has had, a, has had a lot of children, then you're less likely to be able to get pregnant. Is that true? Um, I don't, I don't, I don't think so. I mean, the only case I would say that that might be the case is if you were at the bottom end of a large family and your mom was just exhausted when she had you. Okay. I mean, you might have gotten less <laughs> life essence, as the Chinese would <laughs> say. <laughs> but but um, there are people who don't look very robust who have, well, I know they have eight kids. Yeah. Mm -hmm. You know, they're tiny, tiny little people, and mm -hmm. I don't think they, and they ter have terrible teeth. So you know they didn't have oh. great nutrition growing up. But as adults, they take very good care of themselves. They've had eight kids, no problem. Okay. So I think that, fortunately, um, a lot of it, most of it depends on how you're taking care of yourself in in the short the shorter term so you have a lot more control over it if you're um it occasionally happens that like a mom having her 17th child gives birth to a daughter that doesn't have ovaries or something i mean it's, yeah. it's, it's there's random things but yeah. or that you're you have fewer eggs or they're a little less well formed but but most of that I mean, your body has so much capacity to heal um i've known people where they 
they just they couldn't get pregnant for 10 years you know after they got married and then and then all of a sudden they kind of figure it out or they just start having kids they sometimes they don't even know why mm-hmm. um so i don't know my mom had nine full-term kids and a ton of miscarriages and um i'm the oldest in my family the oldest kid but i had no trouble at all being okay. pregnant my sister has had she was she went through this kind of anorexic phase and she has celiac so those things have impaired her fertility. She's still on her fourth kid, um, and she, you know, she's younger than me, so she might have another one. Um, so, in fact, there's a funny story about my sister. She called me. She's like, "Oh, I went to the doctor because she'd just gotten um, married, and then he gave me. He looked at my blood work and he's like, Whew, you're gonna need a lot of help. Come back.' So she, so, so they went and they were gonna come back like a a month or two later, he was going to give her this whole packet. She's like, I'm so depressed, you know, I really wanted to get pregnant, you know. And um, I was like, well, in the meantime, you know, you could try this and this and this. And by the time she went back for her packet, she was pregnant. Oh. <laughs> and the, the doctor said, I have your blood work here. This should not have happened. Mm-hmm. What were you doing? And she's like, well, my sister said try this and this and this. And he's like, hmm, well, okay. <laughs> I guess it was, you know, he thought it was a couple of these particular supplements that had regulated her blood sugar, and I don't know, who knows? I mean, God is in control. It's mm-hmm. not It's not really us. So because of the challenges of how much abstinence NFP involves, as you can see from this chart, um, you're looking at a minimum of 10 days to have certainty, at, to have that 99% certainty that people typically want to have. Sometimes people are like, oh, I'd rather not be pregnant, but we'll be kind of sloppy about our NFP and just kind of see what happens. And that's fine. That's, that's just a different sort of a, don't call it NFP. Um, so I would I would suggest that if you're anticipating getting married, if you think this is, if this is down the road, the thing to think about is not just understanding your cycle, but how could I be, what would it take for me to be able to be okay with having a bunch of kids? In reality, the difference for a lot of couples between NFP and not NFP tends to be about two kids. I mean, the families I know that, if I think of all my peers here, and I have a sense for who has tried to space their kids or avoid having kids for a period of time for for different reasons, you know, ultimately, you're going to be fertile for probably 20, if you get married in your 20s, you're going to be fertile for probably a solid 20 years, if all is going well. So there's a lot of time. <laughs> and the funny thing is, some of my peers would wean their babies when they were young to get pregnant faster, which I always thought was weird, because I thought one, one toddler at a time is plenty for <laughs> and, and they're enjoying nursing, you know, just just... You have time. You probably have time. Even if you have health problems and you don't get pregnant the first five, seven, ten years you're married, you probably still have time. And there is adoption too. Many people adopt and then get pregnant. So, you know, it can be very panic inducing if you get married and you're not getting pregnant when you're hoping to be, or you're thinking, um, how many kids am I going to have? But what tends to happen is people get tired and old and their fertility often slows down as they get older. Um, or they just decide that the difference between six kids and eight kids is not worth 
you know, months and months of abstinence over the course of, you know, their marriage. So if I think about all the people I know, I can think of people who have 12 kids and they're, they don't, they don't mind. It's like, oh, I'll just take them as they come. You know, if you're healthy, this one lady I'm thinking of, like her husband works hard, money's not a problem. He takes her out on a date every single week, which is very unusual among married couples. And he's always taken her out on a date every single week. And most of the other women I know say, if my husband did that, I wouldn't care how many kids I had either. (laughs) So I think the moral of the story is it's great to chart. It's great to understand how this works and, and, you know, do your, do the best you can with the body that you have. But it might be just as good to make your husband take you out on dates once <laughs> a week. And then you might never need to really, you might never really feel like you need to space out your kids. You know, so, so much of it comes down to not just random circumstances like does my kid need a heart surgery or some kind of extreme things that happen. A lot of what makes people think, oh, I need to really space this out, is just that they... Um, they're not, the husband and wife are not supporting each other very well in their role as parents. And so I would not say that it's necessarily easier to have six kids than ten kids because it depends so much on the parents, as you guys probably know, right? It's not even necessarily easier to have three kids than ten kids, depending on the kids, (laughs) depending on what your relationship is like. So while I think it's great to know this, another place to really think about putting your energy is what do I need my relationship to look like so that we can just be open and and not have to worry so much about when the babies are going to come? What do I need my health to be like? Right? What do I need to do to take care of myself so that if maybe I'd prefer to not get pregnant with a one-year-old, but if I did, everything would probably be fine. So... That's a nice place to be in, if you can take good enough care of yourself that you don't have to um, have a lot on the line. If you are a type 1 diabetic, if you've been diabetic since you were a kid, you are going to have to do this your whole marriage. Um, Most of those people can't have more than a couple of kids because it's just too complicated. So there's certain situations where you are going to have to, this would be, this would be really a big, you know, you'd have to be, um, abstinent for a lot of your marriage because of really significant health issues. So just be appreciative. If you're basically healthy, it is such a blessing that, that you have the option to not really, you know, worry about it one way or the other. Even if you think like, oh, I, I think I can only handle four kids or whatever, you just take that, take it one at a time. So. Yeah. I have a quick question. You said um, that like this works 99% of the time. So in that 1%, how do you like? Is that just like throughout your whole cycle, there's a 1% chance of you getting pregnant? Um, and if so, how does that No, happen? I think the 1% is per, if 100 couples use uh, a natural family planning system for a year, on average, one of them will get pregnant, even if they've all used the system perfectly. Okay. Which, so either the sperm lives longer than we know, or there's a second ovulation or something that, so either, you know, no system of contraception is 100%. Mm-hmm. None, none. Not even the hormonal um, barriers, IUDs, none of them are 100%. Mm-hmm. 
There's only one system that's 100% and that's not doing it. But if you, you know, if you, um, if you need that 99% certainty that you want to maintain that kind of that part of your relationship with your husband, which you don't want to just go without for years, but that's what people had to do. You know, I know there are stories of people who are now in their 70s, 80s, your great grandparents. If they might not tell you this, but there are stories of people who were told after the wife had the fourth kid, she bled so heavily, she should not get pregnant again, she would die. And at that point, you know, you're, you're, if people were told that, they might simply stop sleeping together for the next 20 until the wife goes to menopause. So we are very, very blessed that we have an, so many ways that we can track this easily. So we have a lot more options than people did even 50 years ago. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Maybe I missed it, but um, you were saying that the different colors were different hormones. hormones? Yeah. This is a very rough chart. So the green one is the... This is luteinizing hormone. This is what like ripens okay. the, the part that pops out the egg. And I just kind of wrote these lines kind of randomly. They don't actually represent like <laughs> exact numbers on here. Mm-hmm. But you have follicle-stimulating hormone, which is another hormone that ripens. So this egg pops out of this kind of fried egg-looking thing called a follicle yeah. on your ovary. And... Um, one way that we tell when people are in menopause is that this goes up a lot mm-hmm. because over time your ovaries kind of stop listening and they, they don't they become like hard of hearing. So your body will ramp up your follicle stimulating hormone to try to get your ovaries to pop out another egg and the ovaries are like, oh, I can't do it, I'm too tired. So this is, if this is extremely high, it's considered a marker for menopause. So if you're, if you're young and everything's working, it's just not going to be screaming high. It just goes up just at the right time, goes up a little bit to, pop, to stimulate this. And then estrogen and progesterone, I think we're all kind of familiar with. Estrogen comes in different forms. Um, some of them are more biologically active than others, and we don't even know exactly what role every single one of them has. But progesterone is the one you make a lot of. You make a lot of estrogen and progesterone when you're pregnant. So that's why pregnant women get really thick hair. <laughs> Um, the estrogen and progesterone change their like hair growth patterns, <laughs> and it's also why pregnant women can be really moody <laughs> and really weepy because the estrogen, extra estrogen, can make you super super weepy. I remember one time going to the wife, she asked me some question, and I just started crying. And she's like, "Whoa, <laughs> <laughs> lots of estrogen today!" And I was like, "Oh my gosh, <laughs> do some people feel like this every month? This is terrible, you know." Um, so. So, um, and progesterone, if you have extra progesterone, it can make you kind of sleepy. It can make you retain water, but like nothing really bad happens. So this is why there's a kind of a, an idea in um, prenatal care that it's like, why not supplement with progesterone? There's basically no downside, except it can make you sleepy. So some people take it at night. Okay. Most people, don't supplement with estrogen until they're like in menopause if they're having some particular like awful hot flashes or something. But normally you don't need extra estrogen and it will make you very emotional if you have too much. Um, if your estrogen is too low, is there anything you can supplement with or do you, is that just Well, you could you could take it. It's it's pretty uncommon for young people to get progesterone supplement or estrogen supplements or hormone supplements in general, because usually 
the only way your hormones would end up really, really low is if you just like your body fat was too low or you really weren't eating or something. Um, if you just naturally have kind of low estrogen, it's not going to interfere with your fertility or anything really running, as far as we can tell. And you'll be less busty. Right? You're like certain things will grow differently, but it's it's not it shouldn't affect your life too much. Um, and generally speaking, your body wants to make hormones. Like nature is acting for men, so your body wants to make the hormones when you're the right age. So if you're eating food, your body will tend to make those. If you're eating nutritious food. Um, okay, so I think that, <laughs> this is weird, I feel like my cycle's different than when I'm at home than when I'm at school. Yeah, you probably eat differently. Yeah, well, actually, I kind of eat the same things, because I have like a very particular diet, so I'm allergic to basically everything. Okay. Um, so it's not really that, Do you eat more <laughs> at home? Does your mom make it better? Mm-mm. Okay. a lot of hormones and yeah. has the alpha personality could somehow lead the psychopath. It doesn't seem <laughs> that doesn't I seem wonder, yeah. I We definitely know that cha- sharing clothes, you share hormones and then that that will tend to line up everybody's cycles. So the So there's three of us cycling, but we're not cycling that closely because we don't share clothes because we all wear a slightly different size and we all sleep in different rooms. So even though we're in the same house, we don't actually cycle together. But if you're if you're the same size as your dorm room or you have if you have the best wardrobe and you're you know everybody's sharing your clothes, I think that would excite me. So that maybe that was that was stronger than your own yeah. effect. Yeah, yeah. And I wasn't thinking about that in terms of college students having irregular cycles. I forgot about the mm-hmm. dorm room. <laughs> but it's, it's, it's really a thing. If somebody has a stronger period, they'll like make other people have. Their well, I mean, some people just <laughs> some people just I think shed more hormones, right? If you have more hormones and you sweat more, like, and then you share clothes, like. Your hormones are on the clothes more than the person who sweated less, right? So that, uh, you could see how that would be the dominant, or if you just make more, right? I mean, there's hormone patches. If you need hormone supplementation, like, your skin is actually a great delivery system for stuff. And I don't know if we would count, like, sharing shoes, because feet are kind of sweaty, but sometimes people still share shoes. Um, Blankets? Like, how often do you wash your, you know, robe blankets? Yeah. Or your scarves? That's right around your neck. So... Yeah. Your jewelry. Yeah, yeah. I guess jewelry would hold some. Yeah. Yeah. So I never. I I don't remember if I was cycling at the same time as my roommate when I was in college. Um, I don't remember asking them. But it's possible we were. 
it's not getting directly. This baby just has whatever it came with from the egg yolk sac. So <clears throat> when the when the egg grows, there's like a kind of a pre-placenta thing, the yolk sac. Um, the yolk sac, whatever nutrients this has, the first several weeks the baby's growing, this depends on the nutrients that you had before the egg came out. This is why if, if somebody said, oh, you get three months of prenatal vitamins, when are you going to take them? I would take them two months before I got pregnant and probably month seven of pregnancy, which is when the baby tends to take a lot of them. This is so helpful. Yeah, this is why. This yeah. is why I'm having this class because it's so much better to know that everybody starts taking prenatals after the pregnant. Yeah. And it still does help the mom. It still helps you have a better, you need the nutrients to have a better pregnancy. But in terms of any chance at preventing a birth defect, the ship has sailed. Mm. So in, wow. in Asian medicine, they consider that when you're born, you're already one year old because they consider those three months before conception as part of your wow. growth period because of all the nutrients <laughs> that play a role in how you're gonna grow. Yeah? Um, so you, you said you could even take prenatal vitamins before you get married? Absolutely, like yeah. how long yeah. before? I mean, however long you feel like paying for them and getting in the habit of taking them, basically. I, I, I'm a pretty slow habit former, so it took me a while to just get in the habit of taking stuff. So, but again, if you're, you know, it's still something, even if you're inconsistent. Um, so, so you might just experiment, even if you don't have any particular health issues, you might just find that you feel more energetic when you take them. So there's, it's worth the $30 a month just because then you can get more done. I had somebody who was talking to recently about this, and she's like, oh, all these supplements are really adding up. And it was like, I suggested three or four things, and I think it was probably about $60 a month that she was spending on supplements. And she's, you know, just has a coffee shop job, so it didn't, it seemed like a big hit. But then I said, well, can you work four more hours a week or a month? Are you four more hours more productive? Because that's all it takes in terms of your working hours to make up the difference. And she's like, oh, yeah, I guess if I look at it that way, it doesn't seem like so much, so... Um, so yeah, the placenta isn't really hooked in until the baby's, I don't know, six or eight weeks along. At that point, it already has its fingers and toes and everything. Wow. Yeah. So. And you, um, you said something before about how supplements can help with like stress and anxiety, because mm -hmm. I've also heard that stress and anxiety that the mom feels, the baby will also like yeah, receive yeah, and affect sure. growth. So you're saying like yeah. supplements could help control that as well? Yeah, yeah. And of course, again, you want to start before you're pregnant. I mean, the best supplement for anxiety is often just like a mineral supplement, mm. like a liquid minerals. Um, my kids take them for growing pains, um, but I think it also helps my, my high-strung kid to kind of be a little more chill. So magnesium is one that you all often think of, but supplementing one mineral and not the other minerals, that's not really how food works, mm -hmm. you know? So if you get a liquid mineral supplement where they take minerals out of like soil or salt beds or something and concentrate it, um, some of them don't even taste that bad, surprisingly. Um, there's one, I didn't bring it with me, I don't have it. Um, yeah, there's one that my kids, that my, even my kids like, it's like called Ionic Trace Minerals. It's like $10 for a bottle. So it's quite cheap. You need to put a cap full in your juice. And it just makes the juice taste a little different, but it's not bad. Especially if it's like cranberry juice and they kind of tart, they just drink it right down. And my 10-year-old will take it because she's getting growing pains and it helps. The minerals are good for if you're having muscle cramps, like if you work out a bunch. So um, 
Um, so it's it's useful for that reason. And for many people, just eating more protein and enough more fat, and then eating and then taking minerals will help their anxiety a lot. So many people find that they, especially if you're trying to eat only healthy food, you just might not be eating quite enough. Mm-hmm. It's very easy to not eat enough fat. So for my high-strung kid, sometimes what she has for breakfast is she whips up a pint of cream and takes a large bowl of strawberries and dips the strawberries in the the pint of cream that she's whipped up for just her. Yeah. And then she's super happy and mellow for like four hours. (laughs) (laughs) That is good for your brain. If I went on a low-fat diet, I'm pretty sure I'd, I'd be a raving lunatic in a couple of weeks. It makes my blood sugar so unstable. And but um, and people are different. People have different needs for this. But my husband always teases me about how much butter I put on my bread. Mm. And I was like, well, it's clearly working for me. So. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, if I'm especially if I'm nursing a baby, I probably I think there's times when I go through a stick a day myself yeah. when I'm nursing a newborn. But definitely half a stick a day. Like when I butter my toast, it is really <laughs> the butter's just the toast is just carrying the butter. <laughs> the only reason I eat toast is because I can't eat butter by itself. I, like when I was a kid, I would eat. so you know, so yeah, fat and protein. Protein gives you the amino acids that your body turns into serotonin and dopamine and all the things that we use to regulate our mood that our body makes all of our different brain chemicals out of. So. Have you heard of like the bulletproof coffee? Like, yeah. yeah. My daughter and I went to the bulletproof conference a couple times. It's really oh, fun. Oh, so good. Yeah, I it's, was just talking about that. It's interesting. It's like, it's like green yeah. coffee in the morning and then like you have a stick of butter, like a tablespoon of butter. <laughs> oh my yeah. God. And like you yeah. blend it up. Yeah. 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 So that, that guy, that guy was really about the ketogenic diet. He really yeah. popularized it mm-hmm. and partly because of the coffee because it makes it yeah. easier to fast if you have coffee with butter in it. Yeah. And you go go through the whole morning and it tastes pretty good. Mm-hmm. Um so it's interesting though, because I, I follow his uh stuff and I read a lot of the articles on his blog. And he's a guy and he really healed his hormones by being on in a ketogenic diet for a long time. He really enjoyed it. He felt great up to a certain point. But he said he was lean and his brain was looking great, but after about eighteen or after a couple of years of ketosis, like he couldn't make tears anymore because oh, he wow. didn't. You need some carbohydrates, polysaccharides, some yeah. certain kinds of sugar to make tears. And this is so people will get these weird things happening sometimes after going on a ketogenic diet for an extended period of time. Also, male tolerance for a ketogenic diet seems to be vastly different than female tolerance, partly because of this female thyroid thing where women's thyroids are very sensitive to the energy availability in their environment. And so if a woman is on a ketogenic diet for a long time, this is the weird thing. If a woman has polycystic ovary syndrome or indefinite imbalance, a ketogenic diet could be the best thing that ever happened to her. But if you go online, you'll see all these comments, hundreds of comments from women, even on the Bulletproof blog, that say, I was afraid, I was 20% body fat, fit and lean, I felt amazing, my cycles were great. And so I went on the ketogenic diet thinking, this will make it even better. I'll be like a god. <laughs> and then three weeks or th- three months into this, I have acne and my periods are weird or my periods stopped. So don't mess with a good thing, you know. Mm-hmm. And I don't think if a woman already is metabolically healthy, I don't know that there's a huge advantage. If you want to ex- explore a ketogenic diet, like go for it. You know, there's plenty of reasons. People do it for different health reasons, but just be aware that your body might not be delighted the way you think it would. 
you might need to carb refeed. So some women just cycle in and out. So they'll eat like a fat day, like a heavy fat day, and they'll eat like a heavy carb day. And they like that kind of mix of going back and forth, and it seems to work for them. But it, that's a little more work. I like my fat a lot, and I'll get into ketosis accidentally sometimes. Um, but then I'll always run it, then I, try, then I pull out of it by eating a bunch of carbs. Like mango sorbet or something is my, my favorite. So, yeah. I don't know, we've got a long time. I don't know if you guys, let's see. Um, so yeah, any any other questions or? Where did, oh, I was just gonna ask, where did you learn all this? Did you go to school? Oh, <laughs> um, well I did for some of it. So um, I was always that kid that would sneak off and read nutrition books and that's kind of what we had around. Like my mom didn't really like children's literature very much. So <laughs> we had like picture books adult books and like nutrition and history books and so I just always thought it was really cool mm -hmm. and I've seen my mom help some you know take care of things into my grandpa my grandpa was always reading the latest nutrition book and he overhauled his diet and changed different things <laughs> and so that he would chat with me about it um but then after TAC I went to oriental medicine school and learned about acupuncture and herbs and their wow. kind of whole way of looking at nutrition, mm -hmm. which is, you know, kind of more like the big picture than us. So in Chinese, me in Asian medicine in general, they don't, they're not, they don't do the scientific method like we do, where they're like, why is it happening? I'm not going to tell you to eat this thing unless I can say why. I need to know why. They're like, who cares? <laughs> Carrots cure night blindness and liver cures night blindness. They didn't know it was vitamin A and they didn't care. They're just like, if you have night blindness, I can solve your problem. So it's a very, it's a very different mindset. It's very pragmatic, but it's also kind of poetic. So they'll say like, "Oh, you run too hot and dry. You need more cooling wet foods." <laughs> and they'll be like, "And guess what? Cooling foods are things like cucumbers and apples. Like surprise, surprise, right? <laughs> or you're, you run, like, you're feeling cold, cold and sluggish after your meal. Did you eat your food right out of the fridge and chase it down with an ice water? Well, you just ate a bunch of cold food." Your body now has to heat that food up to digest it. You just made a bunch of extra work for your body. Try eating your food hot and see if you get more energy. So there's just a lot of stuff like that. But they're very good at analyzing cycle things, and they were they're they're very big on um, getting you healthy before you get pregnant, so you have a better time, and it's better for the baby. Yeah, I mean babies do survive stressful pregnancies. It changes their brain though. Mm -hmm. So because. And actually, babies will survive the mother starving when she's pregnant in most cases, but it will change the baby. If there's a if there's a little girl pregnant inside a mom who is starving or undernourished, we know this from um, like in World War II. Sometimes they couldn't get food to a town for months, so people are just like eating the turnips out of their backyard and you know whatever they can find, and they contract it when we're pregnant. A funny thing happens that. The girls who were inside their mother's tummies, when their moms are getting almost no calories, the eggs develop differently. The eggs will develop in such a way that their children can survive on almost no calories, which unfortunately means that the grandchildren of those mothers who were hungry are probably going to be likely to be obese. So this was documented, to kind of to everyone's surprise, but they could clearly correlate it back to... Um, back to this, like these starvation th 
things that happened during World War II. That's survival mode. Yeah, it's like the, the eggs, so if you're pregnant with a girl, her eggs are getting messages about the environment and the genes are changing. Um, or if the mom's exposed to different medicines or, or chemicals, the eggs can get accumulated with those chemicals. So I know someone whose mom had this weird drug that was popular at the time for some sickness when she was pregnant and her first several kids have really impaired health. Like the ones, I, I, we were kind of joking, like maybe those are the eggs on the outside of the ovaries and the ones on the inside didn't get as much exposure because like her first four kids all have a bunch of health problems, the second four are all fine. It's like, were those the later eggs? Like what's going on? Um, so yeah, there's a lot we don't understand about it. I think there's a way to switch those genes back off to make the people not obese, but you have to give them this extraordinary nutrient-dense mm -hmm. diet and they'll still have the tendency to be overweight, Wait, like unavoidably. Why are they obese? Because we, we think that their, their grandmothers were starving when they were pregnant with their mothers. So like what would trigger the, I think we think that the eggs, uh, the eggs change, the genes and the eggs, because your eggs, your eggs were all growing when you were growing in your mother's stomach. Yeah, so your eggs have been alive basically as long as you have. Wait, like, so you don't really form your eggs your whole life? Or they're just like no, but you don't need to because you've got like thousands. Yeah. Like and they were all there? Like, just they're all forming, yeah, by the time the baby oh, comes out of the mother, the eggs, the, like, the, the machinery's all there. The eggs are all there in their little pre, you know, their simplest form, and they're going to ripen and develop. Yeah, but that's crazy. Yeah, you're not going to get any more later as far as we know who knows maybe we're wrong maybe you can grow more eggs later lots of other things that we thought were true about the body like you don't make any new brain cells well that's been shown to be false too. <laughs> yeah so um if you guys want to put your your email i'll kind of keep in touch i have a little website and i send out updates and i can you know you can feel free to kind of reach out to me with questions as things come up um I have a Facebook page if you want. Thank you, yeah. Thank you so much. Thank you. And, and please feel free to get another round of sex. Can I do anything else? Just like trash. Yeah, maybe. I'll find a trash bag and okay. maybe we can get a, a pitcher of water. Oh, yeah.
Yeah, I'm so glad you guys could all make yeah, it. it. It is. 